following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. It was just about four years ago that my family moved to a house just down the street from this school. That way. Uh, We live on a corner. We love our neighborhood. We love our house. We love our neighbors. And this house is on the corner, and we like living on a corner. Unlike many who like living on cul-de-sacs, you know why? Parking. We love parking since we're hosting all sorts of things, and we have parking that's ample. Well, it was about a year after we moved in that Andrew and Tani Lewis moved in next door. They're right over here. To my right, Andrew, would you go ahead and stick your hand up in the air? Round of applause for Andrew Lewis. Okay. Andrew serves as one of our most faithful deacons here at FBC. You'll catch him on most Sundays just outside one of the doors. He's responsible for a lot of the things that happen on Sunday mornings, and he's always amped up making sure everything goes just right. He even has, I can see it right now, one of those little things that go into his ear and around the back so he can hear all the chatter out there on the World Wide Web. I don't know what's actually happening there. Anyway, when the Lewis's first moved in, we didn't really know them very well. We weren't really close as friends or as families. And uh, I decided from the get-go that I would serve and do everything I could to serve Andrew. He's such a faithful servant here at church, and so I thought, I'm going to serve him at home. Uh, my first task, I would take out his trash cans every Sunday night. So that first week, I snuck to the side of his house, I opened his big white metal wrought iron gate, I unlatched the gate, let myself into his side yard, and moved his trash cans out to the street. The next afternoon, when the trash cans were empty, I went out there and I brought them quietly, stealthily back so that he wouldn't know who had done this most awesome act. I thought to myself, how cool is this? An elder serving a deacon. I was very proud of myself, and my plan worked great for the first couple of weeks. One afternoon, Sunday, I opened his gate, and before I knew it, his little dog shot past me like a rocket, straight down to the street, turned right, and headed all the way down, and I don't know the dog's name. I don't know if the dog is a boy or girl. I'm, I hate. The last thing I heard was the dog yelling, freedom, as it headed down the street. I chose not to chase it, but instead to knock on his front door. When he answered, I sheepishly told him, hey, I was taking out your trash cans, and I accidentally let your dog out. Barefoot, he pushed past me and just sprinted down to the street and down the sidewalk. And I got to tell you, Andrew Lewis is fast. I stood there out in front of his house, awkwardly waiting for him to return, as if I'd been called to the principal's office and I was awaiting that confrontation. Well, he caught up with his dog about a quarter of a mile down the street and returned holding her sweaty and out of breath. He kindly brushed off my apology and went back into his house and shut the door very quickly. (laughs) Unfazed, the next week I was back at it. I went to take out his trash cans. I reached in through that wrought iron gate to open the latch behind the bushes, and I couldn't get the gate to open. Andrew Lewis had installed a lock on his gate. And I learned a very valuable lesson. You cannot out-deacon a deacon. There it was. Well, I use this as a real-life illustration about serving others because we recognize that serving others is not easy, is it? In fact, we struggle to serve one another. Yeah, we know what the Bible says. We should think more highly of others than ourselves. We know that we're supposed to set their needs above our own. And I gotta admit, it's easy to serve others if we know that somebody's watching us or if we know that there's something that we can gain by that service. But by and large, true, selfless, humble service is difficult. We often compare ourselves to others thinking, why should I serve them? I'm older, smarter, have more money, 
drive a cooler car, dress better, have a better vocabulary. I'm cooler than them. I have a more distinguished title. I have more kids, and those kids are more well-behaved than their kids. I was at this church first. I've been serving in ministry longer. I've not only been on a short-term missions trip, I have led a short-term missions trip. I know the pastor by name. It's Chris. <laughs> I've been to training center. I'm a leader in this church. I, 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 I. And when we do a quick self-evaluation, we find the reason that we struggle to serve is that our off, often our eyes are fixed on ourselves. We compare ourselves to others inventing reasons why we should not serve them, but rather they should serve us. Do you think that there are acts of service that are below you, Christian? Are there things today that you have outgrown in your current state as a believer and your current maturity? Those are things reserved for other kind of lower, lesser, entry-level people. That's for someone else. That's below me. That's less than me. Sadly, that's too often how we think. But in the passage before us this morning, Jesus flips the script. He shows us what selfless service looks like as he, the Lord of glory, washes his disciples' feet. He shows us that those who truly love others will humbly serve them. If you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 13 and this most famous and amazing text. And today we begin a series titled The Shocking Christ. This is the Jesus you may not know. And for the next seven weeks, we're going to be moving around the Gospels, looking at different aspects of the life of Jesus Christ. The topics that you'll hear are unexpected and in some cases outright shocking. Our teaching roster includes Nigel Shaler, John Plesnick, Pat Levis, Shannon Hurley, and our pastor named Chris. Our first message this morning is titled, The Shocking Humility of Jesus Christ. It's here in John 13 that we see the Lord Jesus as he humbly and selflessly loves his men and gives us an example of service to follow in our lives. And I must warn you, the results are a bit shocking. This will challenge, this will confront your easy sitting there in those nice chairs. This will convict you and ultimately, I hope it will drive you to serve the way Jesus served. And if I could boil this message down to just one thought, this is the best I could do as I looked at this. Here it is, I want you to write this down. Jesus is amazing, I wanna be just like him. Jesus is amazing, and I want to be like him. And this morning we're going to examine four truths about Jesus Christ that will motivate you to be more like him for your own personal blessing and for his glory. Let's read the text together and then we'll dive in. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, 
Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the teacher and the Lord, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This text is amazing. Truth number one about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus loves fully. Jesus loves fully. Now this verse, John 13, 1, serves as an introduction to John 13 through 17, known as the Upper Room Discourse, in which Jesus privately prepares his men for his immediate departure. These chapters contain some of the most beloved truths in all the Bible, only given to us in the Gospel of John. And one commentator wrote, it is as if we approach on holy ground. In setting the context for what's happening here, we can pull from all four Gospels to find out that this is Passion Week. On Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. We call it Palm Sunday. They threw down palm fronds and yelled out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Monday, he cursed a fig tree as he entered Jerusalem and he cursed, excuse me, and he cleansed the temple. On Tuesday, he locked horns with the religious leaders, stoking their hatred and desire to kill him. Wednesday is largely quiet. Possibly he is out spending time with his friends in Bethany. On Thursday, he gathers with his men for the Passover dinner, washes his disciples' feet, initiates communion, promises to send the Holy Spirit, and prays the high priestly prayer of John 17. He agonizes in the garden, praying for the cup to pass, and is ultimately betrayed there. Early Friday morning, he is tried, convicted, and sentenced to death, and by 9 a.m. on Friday, he's hanging on a cross. We pick up the narrative in John 13, 1, on Thursday night, in the middle of that Passover meal. Jesus is eating one final meal with his men. Look back at verse one. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I wanna draw your attention to that phrase, his hour had come. Do you see it right there in verse one? John has used this phrase, and Jesus has throughout this gospel, saying that his hour had not yet come. It is not yet time, but now the hour has come. It is time. What exactly is this hour referring to? It is not 60 minutes on a stopwatch. This is a direct reference to his suffering and death on the cross. This is the hour of pain, the hour of judgment, the hour of wrath and devastation. But it is also the hour of forgiveness, the hour of salvation and the hour of life. This is the hour of victory and the hour of triumph. Verse one adds, look down there, that Jesus will soon depart, excuse me, out of this world to the Father. But not yet. The cross looms directly before him and he knows that his time has come. And with this in view, verse one ends saying, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The Greek word there for love is the word agape. We know that is the highest sacrificial form of love. We learn here that some belong to Jesus Christ and some don't. Notice the possessive pronoun. They are his. They are his own. They belong to him. John 6, 37 says they were given to him by the Father. In chapter 10, verse 11, they say, he is the shepherd, they are the sheep for which he lays down his life. In John 10, 28, they are the ones that he holds securely in his hand and no one can snatch them. In John 1, 12, these are those who believe in his name and are called children of God. What about you? What about you? Are you one of his Do you belong to him? Are you one of his own? I sure hope so because look at the text. It is these that he loves. At the end of verse one it says, and he loves them to the end. 
This is an incredible statement. It's a statement that starts here in John 13, 1 and extends to the end of eternity. Look at that word there, the word end. It means to the conclusion, to the close, to completion. It can be translated, he now showed them the full extent of his love. But what exactly does that mean, that he loved them to the end? Uh, To the end of what? What exactly does this refer to? I found three possibilities. Let's walk through them one at a time. The first, he loved them to the end of his life. He loved them to the end of his life. Certainly, this is true. Jesus loved them all the way to the cross. In an unmatched demonstration of selfless love, Jesus approaches the judgment seat of God and says to the Father, treat me as if I had lived their life. Judge me for their sin. I will pay it all. And on the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God that we deserve, and he drank it, draining every last drop. In 1 Peter 2, it says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, experiencing the full wrath of God, the payment for sin, on our behalf. In John 15, 13, Jesus speaking says, greater love has no one than this, than one laid down his life for his friends. In Romans 5, 8, it says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is love to the end. One of my favorite quotes is by Charles Spurgeon. It says, it seemed as if hell were put into his cup. He seized it, and in one tremendous labor of love, he drank damnation dry. From the cross in John 19, 30, At the end of his life, Jesus declares, it is finished. The same Greek construction. This is the conclusion. This is the end. This is the final point. It is the loud cry that comes from the lips of a conqueror. Jesus loved to the end, and he says, it's done. From Adam till Christ, there is sin, but now it is finished. Satan has raised himself as the God of this world in defiance and rebellion, but now his head has been crushed. It is finished. Death has its cold and icy grip that drags men and women to hell, and it has been dealt the death blow. It is finished. Every failure of ours, every denial of ours, every compromise, every act of disobedience, it is finished. Because when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. He sees only the righteousness of Christ. Your sin has been paid for. It is finished. Guilt, shame, remorse, regret, you need carry them no more. They were nailed to the cross. You are free. You are forgiven. My friends, it is finished. It has been done, and there's nothing that can be done to undo what Jesus has accomplished at Calvary. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We could say secondly, not only to the end of his life, He loved them to the end of their lives. And certainly this too is true. At every trial, in every event, in every pain, in the good times and the bad times, on their best day, on their worst day, in the times of deep sorrow, in the moments of great joy, when he gives, when he takes away, at every point, at every time, his love remains. Jesus promised before he ascended in Matthew 28, 20, he said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so when these men came to their final moments in which they would be sawn in two and boiled in oil and killed with the sword, thrown off of buildings, stoned to death and crucified, the words of Romans 8, 35 ring true. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Yes, there are days that we will stand at the bedside of a loved one as their health fails and at their gravesite when the end has come. And we will fall to our knees in sorrow and grief, but we can stare death in the eyes and say along with the Apostle Paul, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We remember the words of the psalmist who says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for God, you are with me. 
And our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, is there in our moment of need, dispensing mercy, giving help and grace, sympathizing with us in our weaknesses. And so there, even in death, we find that Jesus, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end of his life. He loved them to the end of their lives. And thirdly here, he loved them to the end of eternity. We see this at the end of Romans 8, 38. It says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And friend, I have to tell you, all three of these hold true. Jesus loves his own, and he loves us to the end, to completion, to the outer bounds of eternity. I worked in a restaurant in college with Tracy in Malibu, and we had all sorts of amazing experiences. I think I've probably shared some in the past. Um, But we got to wait on really important people, movie stars, athletes, dolphins swimming by, sun is setting right in the ocean, just an amazing place. There was a a little tiny lady who uh, was a dishwasher, and so you'd take this, you know, plates of food on your arm or trays full of food and literally walk into the kitchen and just dump those plates and the dishwashers would take them and they had their sprayer, they'd spray them down, they'd wash them, clean them, dry them and then walk them back out to where the food was served. Mary was a little lady and, uh, and she was carrying um, a stack of plates, big, big, you know, large ceramic plates and she was carrying them around through the kitchen and she hit something slippery and slipped out like this and went back and landed um, just on her rear end and her spine. And uh, she was out for weeks. Uh, disability, she was really in a bad way. Her back was, was really toast. Um, the most amazing part of that, as I was there watching and they came with even an ambulance and all these different things, is I looked around and I noticed that not one single plate that she was carrying was broken. As she went back and fell, she held those plates, absorbing the full impact and took the pain in her own body to protect what was in that moment most precious to her. She sacrificed herself so that the plates would be spared. It's a simple image of the great work that Jesus did for us. He took the fall. He went to the cross. Out of love while he suffered, he didn't lose one. He held us close. He took all of the pain, shielded us from that so that we would come out the other side. He loved his own and he loved them to the end. But as we leave this point, I I need to ask you one more time. Are you one of his? Do you belong to Christ? How can you reject this love? And what will you say on that day when you stand before the holy judge? Who will stand with you? Who will defend you? Jesus will say to some, this is one of mine. I died for them. I bore the weight of their sin. They're free and forgiven. What about you? What about you? Who will stand and defend you? Don't turn from the love of Jesus Christ. We could say secondly, not only did Jesus love fully, but in our outline, secondly, Jesus serves humbly. He serves humbly. Now listen, I know we're still not into the story yet, but John, before he even starts, inserts two more parenthetical statements to help us fully grasp the the depth of Jesus' service. And we gotta hit these briefly. Firstly, there in your outlines, it says, Jesus served with full knowledge of his own betrayal. Jesus served with full knowledge of his own betrayal. Look back at verse two. It says, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Verse two tells us that Judas has opened his heart to the devil, and through careful suggestion, applying the right bait at just the right time, Satan has gained an ally in Judas. Now, up to this point, he has worked by invisible suggestion, stoking the sin and the desires inside of Judas's heart. But before dinner is over, verse 20, 27 tells us that Satan would enter into Judas. He would take full control, and these two would conspire together on how to bring Jesus down. 
But I got to admit, at first I looked at this in verse 2, and I'm like, why is this here? It feels a little out of place. Jesus loved his own, and he served them, is where this text is going. But John wants his readers to appreciate that when Jesus washed Judas' feet, he knew exactly what he was doing. He is here contrasting faithful, selfless, self-emptying love of Jesus Christ with the self-centered treachery of the traitor Judas. He is greedy, he's materialistic, he's ambitious, he's full of hatred, he cares only for himself, he can't stand Jesus, he wants him out of the picture, and here he is in this room, and Jesus knows what's happening. In one final act of selfless love, the friend of sinners still extends a gracious hand to watch this treacherous disciple's feet. One writer said it is hard to conceive of a more powerful demonstration of Jesus' command to love one's enemies. If you knew someone was about to stab you in the back, to take advantage of you, to betray you, would you proactively serve them in love and in kindness? Wow. Not only does Jesus serve with full knowledge of his betrayal, but secondly, Jesus serves with full knowledge of his own deity. Look at verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Another parenthetical statement. Three phrases combined together. They tell us about the nature of Jesus Christ. The first phrase, all things have been given into his hands by the Father, speaks of his authority. It is a statement of sovereignty. It's a statement of power. Jesus has full control. All things are now, according to verse 3, in his hands. And what do these all-powerful hands that form the stars in the sky and fashion the earth do next? They take the feet of dirty, stinking, sinful men and perform the task of a menial servant. The next phrase in verse three speaks of his origin. He had come from God. That is to say he has a divine origin. He left the throne of heaven, having been sent by God himself to accomplish the task of redemption. And that final phrase in verse three, he goes back to God, speaks of his future glory. John, on his part, is doing everything he can to clarify and to explain and to help us, listen, to help us understand who Jesus is. This man who will stoop to wash feet is not the first among equals. He is not just a great teacher. He is God, very God. And verse three says Jesus knows these things. He knows his own deity. One commentator wrote, it was not that he forgot that he was God and so he humbled himself. It was because he was God and wished to act as God that he did it. In Luke 22, it tells us that Jesus sent Peter and John into Jerusalem to prepare the Passover. It says there that they would go to a private, furnished, upper room, large room. They'd find a guy with a water pitcher, remember the story, follow him through. Master has need of this. Trying to stay out of the public eye, Jesus has spent the night in Bethany with his men, likely in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And that afternoon on Thursday, they traveled a few miles from Bethany to Jerusalem, walking on roads that were little more than dirt paths. These unpaved roads would have been littered with garbage, animal excrement, which doesn't work so well when you're wearing open-toed sandals. You can imagine the smelly, dirty, gross feet that this would produce. The men arrive at this house, They say hi to Peter and John who have been working all day cooking and notice a large table set for dinner in the center of the room surrounded by low couches for them to recline on while they ate. By the door in the corner of the room, there's a jug filled with water, a large basin, and an apron. It was common courtesy for the host to wash the guest's feet upon entrance to the house. The task was typically typically given to the lowest servant and in a Jewish house, it was typically given to a Gentile servant. But since the meal was entirely private, there was no host and there was no servant. And so they stand around in this room waiting. At first, nobody sits down. And I'm imagining, bear with me, a little bit of conjecture here. This is how the conversation went. Hey, Andrew, you're the youngest. Why don't you wash our feet? What are you kidding? That's disgusting. No chance. James, 
you got us lost on the way over here with your shortcut. Why don't you wash our feet? No way. Peter, you should do it. What, are you kidding? I spent all day cooking for you. You think I'm going to wash your feet also? Round and round the conversations go. No one volunteers. No one wants to degrade themselves in front of the other disciples and certainly not in front of the master. It's possible that this is what leads to the argument that we see in Luke 22, 24. During the Last Supper, it says there, there arose also a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. I'm not washing your feet. Are you kidding? I've got position. I've got age. I've got intelligence. I've got looks. I've got whatever it is. There they are. And I don't really know if that's exactly how it came down, but one thing is for sure. When they sat down for dinner, all of their feet were dirty, okay? Verse 4 tells us that Jesus looked down there, got up from supper, and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Verse 5, then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now again, John is just slowing this thing down. He's painting a picture, and he's seeking to highlight every action of Jesus in an effort to help us fully grasp what is happening. Seven verbs. First, Jesus stands up. Then he takes off his garments, the equivalent of taking off your jacket, rolling up your sleeves. He takes the towel, ties it around his waist, basically an apron. He takes the, um, and pours water from the jug into the basin, and then one by one, he kneels in front of the disciples, takes their feet, puts them into the, 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 the basin filled with water, washes their feet with his hands until they're clean, takes them out, and dries them with the towel that's wrapped around his waist. Then moves on to the next man. One author compares this, and this unfolding of events to the passage in Philippians 2.6. Although he existed, Jesus, in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You recognize that passage. Some believe that Jesus, as he rises from supper, in verse 4, it is similar to him rising from his throne of glory to come to earth. As he lays aside his garments to wash their feet, it is the symbolic act of him emptying himself, taking a towel and girding himself as he's being made in the likeness of men and taking the posture of a servant. Washing their feet is his humbling himself to the point of death. Here he pours out water to wash dirt from their feet, but soon he would pour out his blood to wash their sinful souls. And verse 12 tells us that when he takes his garments and reclines at the table again, it is as he returns to the Father in glory. If we look at Mark 10, 45, it says that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In Luke 22, 27, it says, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? This is amazing. Jesus Christ is the servant king. The Holy One washes the sinful feet. The Creator serves the creation. The Master serves His servant. 2 Corinthians 8 9 is so applicable. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Jesus, in an act of humility and service, bends the knee and washes the feet of these men. This is unfathomable. You don't see the President of the United States on those, those little uh, you know, clips, social media clips or on TV, washing a toilet, right? Cleaning a toilet. You don't see him out taking out the trash. This is not what we see our commanders and our great men doing. This, however, is what Jesus does. He serves. He served by washing feet. This will be an illustration that will show that he will serve all the way to the end at the cross. What a savior. Jesus loves fully. Jesus serves humbly. Number three, Jesus cleanses continually. He cleanses continually. It's, excuse me, when Jesus stood up and grabbed the basin, tied the apron on, I'm sure that all the conversation around the table abruptly halted, don't you think? Just, just picture this. He stands, they've all been staring in that corner, He walks over, 
he first grabs that towel and begins tying around his waist, and they're over here still arguing. And one's hitting the other, and the conversation is coming down and down as Jesus returns with the basin and the jug, and now there is a growing silence. As he begins to wash their feet, each man is doing the mental calculus, trying to understand exactly what is happening. Each was too prideful to volunteer. Each had thought himself better than the one seated next to him. No one wanted to do this menial task. And so now they're presumably too embarrassed to speak up, not sure what to do. They say nothing and they do nothing. That is until Jesus gets to Peter. Peter has been watching. Peter has been waiting. And now as the proverbial spokesperson, he voices his displeasure, what all of them were thinking, in an impetuous and indignant response. Look down at verse 6. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? This doesn't translate well in the English, but in the Greek, this is a very strong language. He is saying, and the emphasis, listen to the emphasis, are you going to wash my feet? Then again in verse 8, never shall you wash my feet. In the Greek, uh, this is the strongest negation or double negative. He's saying, no, never. The literal interpretation, you will not wash my feet as long as the world stands. This ain't happening today. It ain't happening ever. It's interesting, isn't it, that Peter, who in this moment is humble enough to try to stop Jesus from washing his feet, simultaneously is proud enough to tell Jesus what to do. Taking us to our first subheading, Jesus cleanses once for all. Jesus cleanses once for all. Look at Christ's response to this overzealous disciple in verse 8. So patient, so gentle. He says, if I do not wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. You can't identify with me. You do not belong to me. You are not one of my own. And this has always been true. Unless the Lamb of God has taken away your sin and you've been washed clean in his blood, you have no part with him. You see, the only way to be made right with God is for a a sinner to cry out to him for mercy. The sinner has been stained with sin and no matter how hard they try, no matter how hard we try, we cannot wash away the guilt. We cannot wash away the shame. We cannot wash away the regret. Most people think, I'm pretty much a good person, and as long as I clean myself up and look pretty good on the outside, I can work my way to heaven. In other words, I can do it on my own. I can wash myself. I'm clean enough. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, from the Chronicles of Narnia series, Eustace discovers a dragon's treasure on one of their adventures. In this cave, he climbs to the top of a mountain of gold, puts on a gold bracelet, and then falls asleep. Sleeping on the dragon's treasure with the dragon's bracelet on his arm, he dreams dragonish dreams, and to his terror, he wakes up to find that he has become a dragon, and the bracelet is now stuck on his dragon arm. He tries everything he can Everything he can think of to try to turn himself back to a boy, but to no avail. At one point, he begins to peel the layers of dragon skin off himself in an effort to get rid of that scaly, scaly exterior. He works so hard just to shed one layer of skin, only to find out that he's still a dragon. He works again to, to just peel that dragon skin off so that he can be a boy again, only to find that he's still a dragon. He sheds a layer and then another and then another, but with all that effort, after each layer is removed, he finds out that he's still a dragon. But then Aslan, the great lion, came, and with his giant claws, he tore deep into Eustace, and Eustace said the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought he had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But then he was free, and the bracelet was removed, and he was a boy once again. 
You see, friend, like Eustace, it doesn't matter how hard we try, how much we clean ourselves off, how much we try to shed our past and our sin, we are still indelibly stained by the remnant of that sin in our heart. We cannot fix ourselves, and the sinner is desperate, and from their desperate plight, at the end of themselves, they must look up to Jesus, the Lamb of God, crying out for mercy, that he would take away their sin and cleanse their hearts. It's 1 John 1.7 says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In Titus 3.5 it says that he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, he washed us by washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel 36, the picture is of the washing of a heart the making alive of a new spirit, God coming to the sinner and cleansing and cleaning and giving new life. 1 Corinthians 6 says that such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified, justified in the name of our Lord Jesus. At the moment of salvation, Jesus washed your heart, cleansing you once for all. And so Isaiah 118 says that we are now white as snow. All past shame, all past guilt, all of our sin has been borne by Christ on the cross. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that for those who are in Christ, they are now a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Jesus Christ has forgiven you and cleansed you. Listen, once for all. And so look at verse 10 there. Jesus tells Peter, Peter... You're already clean. I have washed you. I have removed your sin. Oh, friend, what assurance that must have been. Imagine being Peter and having Jesus say to him, you are clean. This is the equivalent of saying, you're a Christian. You're saved. Would it not be awesome if Christ descended right here and said to you, Mark, you are clean? What assurance that would give. One thing is for sure here, Jesus cleanses once and for all. But notice there's another idea in these verses. The second subpoint there, Jesus cleanses day by day. He cleanses day by day. Look at verse 10. He said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. Peter, you don't need to be born again and again and again and again and again. You're already clean. The picture of the foot washing is the picture of the Christian's heart before the Lord. You've been given, excuse me, you have been forgiven once for all, but you live in this world with all of its lusts and desires. And like your feet get dirty walking on a dirt road, so your soul and your heart gets dirty walking on a dirty planet. And you need cleansing day by day. Now, the Pharaohs just returned last night from Las Vegas. We spent five days there uh, at a volleyball tournament for Zoe a place that has the nickname Sin City and the slogan, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, as if anonymity can absolve people of the guilt of living out their most sinful desires. To prepare for this message, when Zoe wasn't playing, I found myself holed up in a Starbucks on the ground floor of the Luxor Hotel, opened out into the casino. I spent quite a bit of time there. There was a couple nights that I sat there after Starbucks had closed and the casino was starting to take off. I was back early in the morning and saw some of the same people I'd seen the night before still partying. I joined a man in the bathroom who was violently throwing up at the alcohol he had just consumed. And I have to admit, there were moments in those five days where I felt my desires rising within me, drawn to the things of this world, drawn to the lusts of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life the rush of the fleshly indulgence of all that was there. Soiled by the world, the Lord was faithful to draw me back each time to convict me of sin and to wash me once again. Over and over again, it happened all week long. Christian, you understand this routine, don't you? We live in a world that is stained by sin. We have hearts that desire the things of this world And Jesus, having cleansed us once for all, comes day in and day out and continues to wash us and to cleanse us. 
1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we see that Jesus is constantly cleansing sin. Having done the greatest work on the cross, the once for all forgiveness, he now comes and cleanses us daily, moment by moment, and he makes us clean. Are you dirty right now? Are your feet dirty? Are you holding on to some sin from this past week, some desire that you're unwilling to relinquish to the Lord? Does it need to be confessed? Do you need to be washed today? Don't wait, don't delay. Go to the Savior, confess your sin, and ask him once again to cleanse you. Look at verse 11. It says, Jesus knew the one who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Judas had been washed on the outside but was dirty on the inside. The exact opposite of a true believer. And so it is with some in this room. You've cleaned up your externals. You've done and washed everything on the outside to look good but your heart is a cesspool of sin. Don't wait. Cry out to the Savior who cleanses. Jesus loves fully. Jesus serves humbly. Jesus cleanses completely. And finally, Jesus blesses freely. Jesus blesses freely. Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If I, the greater, as both teacher and Lord, and you, uh, excuse me, serve you the lesser, the follower and the student, then it would be fitting, natural, even normal, for you to do the same to each other. The word ought there in verse 14, do you see it? Uh, it's stronger than the English allows. It has to do with debt. It is to owe something. It is to be under obligation or under moral responsibility. Jesus is placing them under obligation. He is by his service of them impressing on their heart a debt of service to each other. For I gave you, verse 15, an example that you should do as I did to you. And what an example it is. And here it is plainly. Are you ready? Jesus is saying, imitate me. This is an example of love and of service and of humility that you can employ every day of your life. And here's where the rubber meets the road, right? Because he says there, truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, verse 16, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If Christ would perform every task all the way to the bottom, should not his followers do the same? The motivation of love has been given. The example has been set, and now the call is being made. Again, the rubber meets the road right here. We are not to posture for position. We're not to look for ways to escape serving others. We are to live as Jesus lived. He poured himself out in the service of others, and we're to do the same. And there are so many applications here. I'll leave the Spirit of God to press those on your heart. For spouses to serve each other, for siblings to serve each other, for friends to serve each other, for us here at this church to serve one another, for each of us who is in Christ to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But check how Jesus ends in verse 17. He says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I love this. Divine blessing comes to those who serve. Jesus, in this beatitude, will pour out blessing to all who live like he lived. It's a promise that the favor of God resides with those who serve as he served. Now let me wrap this all together really quickly. From the upper room... On that Thursday night, they would go to the garden one last time. They stopped to pray. Then in the darkness, a large crowd armed with swords and clubs led by Judas would take Jesus into custody. Before these men knew what was happening, Jesus is tried, condemned, beaten, and crucified. And in the whirlwind of events that night, I doubt they thought back on something as seemingly trivial as a foot washing during dinner. At least not until later. Jesus said in verse 7, what I 
do, what I do to you now, you do not realize, but you will understand hereafter. Not until Jesus has been resurrected and ascended into heaven. And then, in light of all that had happened, this would become clear. The Holy Spirit would bring to mind all that Jesus had taught them. They would realize that God himself had knelt down to serve them in the most humiliating and lowly way, and it would change them forever. How they lived, how they loved, how they served, and ultimately how they would die. But this narrative of foot washing is just a preview. It's an opening act to the story. The climax is not a jug of water or a basin or an apron. It is a crown of thorns and three nails and a cross. The ultimate service didn't come when Jesus humbled himself to wash their feet, but when he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the shocking reality of the humility of Jesus Christ is that he existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. And being made in the appearance and likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's for this reason that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And our thesis for the morning comes full circle. Jesus is amazing, and I want to be like him. To love like he loved, to forgive like he forgave, and to serve like he served. May the Lord press this into our hearts that we would be more like Christ today and this week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and recognize that on our own we can do nothing, that it is only in Christ that we have been forgiven and washed free. We are so thankful for your service, for your love, for your forgiveness, and now we want to respond. We want to sing from full hearts for all that you've done, and we just want to say thank you. Would you change us and shape us more into the image of Christ? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.